This is Nutshell Politics, a show where we discuss what you need to know about current events, international relations, political conflict, and my favorite topic of discussion, terrorism. The mainstream media isn't always the best at reporting on international events. They often lack depth, context, and understanding, a problem unfortunately driven by ratings. But here, on Nutshell Politics, I seek to fill those gaps, and most importantly, to make sure you know what's actually going on out there. So let's dive in. Hey guys, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am really excited to be back with you guys. I know it's been quite a while. Uh, I took a bit, a bit of a hiatus for several months uh, for a variety of reasons, but I am really excited to be kind of back in my little home studio I have set up here, uh, recording a few new episodes for you guys. Now, a lot of you know with what's been going on in the world lately with the coronavirus, COVID-19, uh, things have kind of been different for a lot of people. Uh, some some good, a lot bad. But we're going to talk a little bit today about pandemics from like a political perspective. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about some historical pandemics that we've seen both here in the United States, around the world. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, pandemic politics kind of in general. And then I want to talk a little bit about kind of how COVID-19, this this current one, is affecting our political situation, uh, again, both here in the United States as well as around the world. Now, I could talk longer about you know why I took a bit of a hiatus and everything, but honestly, I'm excited to just kind of jump right back into uh, doing these episodes with you guys. So uh, with no further ado, let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, so I want to just quickly start by um, defining some of these terms. You'll hear people talk about things like a pandemic uh, versus an epidemic. And there are some differences there. I, I know those terms frequently will get used interchangeably, uh, but they're actually not the same thing. Uh, and let's start with the word epidemic. Uh, an epidemic is actually, it's from a Greek root word, and I'm not going to butcher the... Um, the actual translation of it, uh, but it comes from two words actually. The first one meaning upon, and the second word meaning people. And so it's it's basically a plague upon people is what it's kind of translated as. And an epidemic is simply just the rapid spread of of any sort of disease to a large number of people in some sort of given population within a relatively short period of time. Uh, that's a very vague description, not a whole lot of details there on how you define large number of people, how you define population, or how you define short period of time. So there's a lot of leeway there depending on how people want to talk about it. But that's kind of where we're coming from in terms of epidemic. Now, a pandemic is a type of epidemic. And so you'll frequently hear those used interchangeably. They're not but all pandemics are epidemics. Not all epidemics are pandemics. Uh, so it's kind of one of those situations where uh, one word kind of falls completely within the other. In this case, a pandemic is more about location. So an epidemic can be restricted to one area. Pandemic, though, actually comes from a little bit of a different root. The demos part, the second, the second word, it still means people, but the pan part is also from Greek, and it means all. And so it's it's really a type of epidemic that has spread beyond a single region or single area and spread to a much larger region. Usually, uh, they'll talk about it in terms of crossing continental lines, so going from one continent to another, or in 
kind of a global sense going to affect you know the whole world so a pandemic is a very specific type of epidemic that has expanded beyond one region or one area now you can have endemic diseases which kind of recur and this is what we would typically see with like the flu so the flu is technically speaking a type of pandemic uh, it's worldwide it's a disease that spreads quickly affects a lot of people uh, but you typically don't hear it referred to as a pandemic and there's a couple reasons for that uh, one is that recurring factor usually pandemics don't recur and the final reason you'll frequently hear like things like the flu not referred to as pandemics even though they technically could fall under this definition is that a pandemic is something that usually starts in one area, especially an epidemic as well, starts in one small area, spreads, becomes a pandemic, but it spreads outward from one or maybe a couple uh, lo locations. But essentially there's one or I say a couple sources. Whereas something like the flu has more of a, an endemic nature to it where it's pops up simultaneously in lots of different parts of the world for a variety of reasons. It could be weather related or cold or, or something along those lines. Uh, so you typically don't hear about things like the flu being referred to as pandemics. But there are some cases where you'll see it happen. Uh, in particular, one that's actually been in the news recently for um, comparison's sake to what's going on right now is the 1918 Spanish flu. That was a type of influenza uh, that was referred to as a pandemic. Uh, we're actually not 100% sure where that one came from. We're going to talk about historical pandemics in a minute. Uh, but there are specific cases where you'll hear of the influenza being referred to as a pandemic. But the one that kind of pops up seasonally every winter is usually not one where you'll hear of it in that sense. All right, so with those uh, definitions behind us, let's go ahead and jump into talking about uh, some historical epidemics or pandemics uh, just throughout kind of the course of history. And there, there are a lot of them. Um, I mean, there's ones that go back thousands of years. We actually have record of an, an epidemic in a uh, kind of prehistoric village in China from, I want to say, around 5,000 years ago. And essentially what happened is that we found uh, remains of a house in which all of the bodies of those who were killed by the virus or whatever it was that came through their village were put into one location and uh, then the house was burned down. And we found evidence that this affected everyone from children to young adults to more mid middle-aged folks. Um, and it's actually one of the best preserved prehistoric sites now in all of China. Um, and it's, it's thought that this pandemic happened so fast, there was no time for proper burials, and the village essentially became uh, deserted at that point. Uh, there's a famous plague that ha hit Athens uh, about 400 years uh, BC, uh, and it was around the same time period as one of those famous Athens versus Sparta wars, and this epidemic kind of went through the population of Athens for several years, actually, and many people put the death toll as high as about 100,000 people, which is pretty massive for that uh, time period, given the size of cities and everything. 
Uh, but we actually have some written documentation of this one. There's a Greek historian called uh, Thucydides, and he lived during this time period. And he talked about how, I'll actually give his quote here. It says, uh, people in good health were all of a sudden attacked by violent heats in the head. So that's fever. Uh, and redness and inflammation in the eyes and inward parts, such as the throat or tongue, becoming bloody and emitting an unnatural and fetid breath. Now, we don't really know what this epidemic was, despite some of the descriptions. People have uh, hypothesized everything from Ebola uh, to typhoid fever. But it's thought that the crowding within the city of Athens uh, due to the war that was ongoing with Sparta actually helped contribute to some of this as well. Uh, and ultimately, Athens ended up uh, surrendering to Sparta in this particular battle. Now, I'm going to skip a handful of years here, actually almost a thousand years. We're going to talk about a plague that took place in about the 500s. I think it was the 540s during the Byzantine Empire under the Emperor Justinian. Uh, he's one of my favorite emperors because of his, his great name uh, there. But this was one of the, the first big instances of the bubonic plague. And the bubonic plague in this particular instance actually is probably one of the first markers of the, the fall of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, because the plague hit very hard in about uh, 541, 542, but continued to recur every few years after that. And some estimates suggest that during this time period, as much as 10% of the entire world's population died. Their empire extended all the way from like Western Europe through uh, to the, or at least to the Middle East. And you'll hear of things like the Hagia Sophia, which is a uh, a massive cathedral. Actually, that's been in the news recently for other reasons. Uh, in Constantinople, which is now Istanbul in Turkey, uh, that was the capital at the time. And so the, the Hagia Sophia was built during this time period. But the plague devastated the Byzantine Empire uh, to the point actually Justinian himself got sick with the plague. Uh, he managed to survive, but he lost a lot of territory because of this. Now, the bubonic plague is probably the most famous plague of all time. And as I said, that, that was one of the first instances we see it crop up. But the probably uh, most famous instance of it was in the 1300s, the mid-1300s. Uh, this is the famous Black Death. It moved kind of from Asia into Europe and destroyed massive amounts of the population. In fact, some estimates say over half of Europe's entire population was, was wiped out. And it was caused by a strain of a very, very specific type of bacteria that was spread by fleas on rats, essentially. And this plague was, in terms of numbers and percentages, it's probably the most devastating plague that the world has ever seen. It really fundamentally changed the course of the history of, of all of Europe. And in fact, in particular, too, uh, with so many people dying, I mean, there were ma mass graves all over the place, uh, labor became very difficult to find. And so companies and things at this time period would start offering better pay for workers. This is where we saw the decline of the, the serfdom economy across Europe. And the lack of uh, cheap labor also probably contributed to a lot of technological innovation as well. Uh, and so it, it really kind of changed the course of, of Europe's trajectory in... Uh, obviously some terrible ways, but also in some unexpectedly uh, positive ways that kind of came out at the other end as well. Now, I'm not going to touch on all of these. Uh, as I said, there's been hundreds of epidemics that have ravaged the world, quite a few pandemics as well. Uh, we had plagues all across uh, the American continents as well. Uh, now, most of these actually uh, were... Um, 
I would say man-made isn't the right word, uh, but brought on by um, humans who arrived on the continent from Europe. Uh, this is where you'll frequently hear about you know, things like smallpox that kind of devastated a lot of the native populations in North America, uh, Central America, South America. And some estimates suggest that as many as 90% of the indigenous populations of the, those continents were, were killed off. Again, these were not always um, consciously done. I mean, it's not like the, the European invaders came here intentionally trying to wipe out the natives through disease, although there were a couple instances here here and there that we have heard of of intentionally trying to infect people, which is pretty terrible. Uh, but a lot of it was just incidental. You had people coming over from Europe who had been inoculated against diseases because they either you know survived them previously or, or whatever, bringing them to a continent full of people who had never seen some of these diseases and it, their immune systems weren't up to the task, uh, were unable to fight off some of these these diseases. And it basically collapsed multiple empires here in, in the Americas, uh, including the Incas, the Aztecs. Uh, and the, these would be, you know, Spanish forces a lot of times, like Hernan Cortez came through, uh, Francisco Pizarro came through and uh, conquered the Incas in the 1500s. The British, the French, the Portuguese, the Dutch, uh, they were all helped by some of these kind of mini I was like, many, many is not the right word because they were pretty massive, but more localized um, diseases that that weakened the size of any sort of indigenous native groups that would potentially oppose them. Now, in the United States, we have seen uh, pandemics as well. Uh, probably the the biggest one, or let's just say the one of the earliest ones from the time period where we became the United States, so after 1776, uh, was the yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia. Uh, so this would be an an epidemic because it was localized to Philadelphia, but it, Philly was actually the capital of the United States at that time. A lot of people don't don't realize that. But yellow fever swept through uh, Philadelphia, and there were a lot of misconceptions about what was taking place at the time. And in fact, one of the the most popular misconceptions was that uh, people of African origin, uh, so Af in this case African Americans, but at the time frequently slaves, although not all of them, uh, believed that they were immune to it because they'd come from Africa. And so as a result, there were a lot of African individuals who were recruited to be in the medical profession at this time, so to help recruit to nurse the sick. And it was um, kind of a big shift, particularly as a lot of abolitionists at the time were, were calling for slaves to be freed in order to help treat the sick in Philadelphia. It was kind of an interesting uh, twist on some things that took place there. Uh, the yellow fever, though, was uh, carried by mosquitoes. And so that's how it was transmitted as well. You get bit by a mosquito who was carrying it. And you saw the mosquitoes spike during summer, which is what you still see today. And so it wasn't really until the winter arrived that the mosquitoes died and the epidemic stopped. But in this one town of Philadelphia, you had about 5,000 people die. Now, that's you know small potatoes compared to some of these epidemics that we've talked about. But 5,000 people in one city, particularly a small city at the time, uh, was a pretty big deal. And as I said, this is one of the first ones to really hit the United States. Now, getting into the 20th century, there's actually a couple of them that took place. We had the polio epidemic. This was something that started in New York City in 1916, uh, caused about 6,000 deaths across the United States, mainly hitting children. And anyone who survived would frequently be left with permanent disabilities. Uh, famously, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt actually was diagnosed with polio a few years after the epidemic technically took place. But these polio 
outbreaks would occur every so often, every handful of years, until about the 50s or so. I think it was 54 when Jonas Salk uh, developed the vaccine for that. And as it became widely available, cases started to decline. And we actually haven't seen polio in the United States. I don't. I don't think since I think it was like '79 was the last reported case in the in the U.S. Uh, and actually, uh, we have seen cases across the world decline as well, although it hasn't been quite fully eradicated. And then we get into the famous Spanish flu, the one that the COVID-19 has frequently been compared to. Uh, this was an estimated 500 million people uh, all across the world died, or I should say fell victim to the Spanish flu. Uh, they didn't all die. About a fifth of those uh, died, so in the neighborhood of about 100 million people, with uh, many indigenous groups essentially wiped out, almost you know, pushed essentially to the brink of extinction. And this was one of the most lethal, uh, most contagious spreads that the world had really ever seen in terms of disease, exacerbated to a point by World War I, which was taking place, a lot of soldiers in cramped quarters, poor nutrition during wartime, etc. But this is actually a really interesting one because, as I said, it's been compared to COVID-19 a lot recently. Um, but... The name Spanish flu is a little bit misleading. We don't actually 100% know where it came from. There's people who have pushed everywhere from Mexico to Nebraska. But it's called the Spanish flu because many of the early accounts of the illness were, were from Spain. And that's because Spain had been a neutral country during uh, the World War at the time. And so their, their press was much more free than a lot of other countries. And so because they didn't have censorship of the press, uh, many of the early accounts of illness were freely published in Spain first. And that's where people first heard about it. So the name Spanish flu stuck. Uh, over the years, we've, we've seen other ones. I'm not going to jump into all of these. I guess I already been going on way too long with this. But the, the Asian flu in the 50s um, you know, claimed over a million lives. You have the the swine flu. I bet many of you probably remember that one. That actually took place in 2009, 2010. That was uh, H1N1, came out of Mexico, uh, infected over a billion, almost a billion and a half people. Uh, not as lethal as some when you compare like percentages, but still, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died according to the CDC on that one. You had the, the Ebola epidemic, which ravaged um, West Africa for a few years between 2014 and 2016, over 11,000 deaths. You have the Zika virus, which was fairly recent, just a um, handful of years back. I think that was in 2015. And so we have seen epidemics and plagues throughout all of human history. And this is a political podcast at its heart. So I want to kind of jump backwards for a second and talk about kind of generic pandemic politics. The politics of a pandemic can be very controversial. It can be uh, very tricky to handle. We're seeing it right now with questions over protesting during a pandemic. Uh, how does it affect conflicts that are going on? Right now we have you know conflicts in Libya, Syria, and other places. Uh, you know how, how does a pandemic affect that? We saw this as well with the Spanish flu. Again, there's a lot of comparisons there, but World War I was going on at the time. So how, how did you manage a pandemic in the middle of a war? And then kind of at a more basic level, one, one that's happening a lot right now is how do countries uh, cooperate on this? Our world has become increasingly globalized over the years, and that has resulted in countries 
living together, working together, cooperating on trade deals, cooperating on military alliances, communications. I mean, frequently, especially in Europe, you have people who live in one country but work in another. And countries are just so interconnected to the point where it's it's virtually impossible to keep a, a, a pandemic like this, or I should say an epidemic at the point, from becoming a pandemic because travel is just so ubiquitous. I mean, this is what we saw with COVID-19. You know, it's quite possible, actually, I would argue very likely that the virus arrived in the U.S. long before we even knew about it, probably back in you know October, November-ish. I mean, we get thousands of people coming in from China to the United States every day. The chance of it not actually emerging uh, in the United States until March when everything shut down is, you know, I mean, that's, that's insane to think that. So how does the politics of allies, the politics of enemies in war, the politics of globalism affect or how are they affected during a pandemic? Uh, we're going to take a quick break right now, though, and jump back with you on the other side of a commercial break. So stick with me. I'm just going to give my, break, my um, voice a, a quick break, and I'll be back with you guys in just about a minute. All right. Thanks so much for sticking with me through that brief commercial break. Uh, we are back, and we're going to spend the rest of the episode talking a little bit about the politics of a pandemic uh, from a few different perspectives. I want to look at this a few different ways, but we're going to start by talking about Napoleon. This may seem like an odd direction to go, but Napoleon actually dealt with a pandemic himself among his army back in the kind of late 1700s, early 1800s. Uh, he had just recently won a huge victory over Egypt, and he was traveling to attack the Ottoman Empire in what we now think of as like the Palestinian territories, that area. And this was a time uh, of another big plague. It's actually the same bubonic plague that I talked about before, but it's a couple centuries later that it kind of reemerges, and the bubonic plague starts going through his army and kind of just decimating his army. And so he goes and visits the infected soldiers and trying to raise their uh, morale. Uh, he actually risks uh, getting getting uh, sick himself. Uh, he actually, uh, there's a couple stories of him reaching out and actually touching some of the victims, The uh, you know, actually touching the, the pustules themselves. And I, I want to kind of talk about his response to this pandemic from a political perspective because he does two things uh, that I think we are seeing kind of replayed out today. And I think it's uh, really interesting that we kind of see the same perspective happening twice like this. Before I get too far into his response, I do want to point out one major thing, and that's that this plague took place, again, right around the turn of the century, you know, the year 1800. And this was before we really understood germ theory. So when I talk about some of his responses to this, understand that this was before we had any real concept of what was what actually caused disease. Uh, in fact, he's quoted himself as saying that uh, he believed that fear caused disease, uh, that fear spread the plague, and that you know if somebody had what he called moral courage, that would protect them against it. So understand that this is before we understood germ theory, and this, this obviously isn't just him either. The whole world didn't really understand germ theory. It took about another 50 years or so before the world even came to understand that germs are what spread certain diseases and not things like fear versus courage. Uh, so with that in mind, he had kind of two big responses to this. Uh, one 
is on kind of the negative side is that he actually uses this, kind of manipulates the plague to couch himself as some sort of great moral political hero, you know, in, in the sense of him visiting the troops. And he really goes about constructing this kind of big narrative to advance his own sort of ambitions. And actually, he, he uh, commissions this huge portrait to be drawn of himself that we can actually still uh, see today that basically portrays himself as this kind of brave hero of sorts. And so you have this kind of propaganda-esque move uh, on kind of one front. Uh, and I, actually, I, I'll mention too, like you can see this this canvas print. I mentioned that it still exists. It actually, at least the last I heard, uh, is hanging in the, the Louvre in Paris. And so you can actually go visit it and see this massive painting that he had commissioned to show himself as the hero. Uh, and the painting, he's actually kind of reaching out to an infected soldier and touching him, you know, like he's trying to heal him or something like that. So anyway, that's, that's kind of one side of it. But the other thing that he does, and this is more on the positive front, done in part because he lived during a period which is known as the Age of Enlightenment, if you've heard of that. Uh, and the Age of Enlightenment was a big era of like science and discovery. Uh, this was the time period. Actually, Napoleon's troops are the ones who discovered the Rosetta Stone during this time period. So he had archaeologists. And actually, the Rosetta Stone in itself is a fascinating story if we ha haven't talked about that. That was what... an ultimately enabled uh, scientists and academics and scholars to finally decipher Egyptian hieroglyphics uh, for the very first time. So anyway, long story short, this whole time period was one of significant research advances. And so Napoleon himself bought into a lot of this, and he brought along on the trip with him botanists, geologists, zoologists, chemists, archaeologists, um, biologists, all of these, these different types of scientists. Uh, to, he brought them together and in doing this, he actually helped spur a lot of research into plagues. Uh, now, he's not the one who like ultimately discovered the germ theory or anything like that. It wasn't that big of a deal. But his push for uh, science and research was a pretty strong impetus at this time period uh, during this Age of Enlightenment. He also did several things kind of on the scientific front himself, uh, making sure that you know, the plague victims received full care, full food. He had uh, all of their, their clothes kind of removed and, and cleaned or burned. Uh, he actually was one, one who encouraged them to, to scrub themselves and bathe themselves with soap and water, which would get rid of the lice and the fleas. And if you remember from before the commercial break, I mentioned that bubonic plague specifically is spread by fleas on rats. So this actually had a, a very positive effect to get rid of them. Uh, as I said, he didn't quite understand the disease, and a lot of what he thought of uh, was actually more on the the emotional side of things, like I said, the moral courage versus fear. But some of the actions he took, almost incidentally, did have this kind of positive effect. Now, we're going to jump forward and talk a little bit about kind of more modern responses to pandemics. And I'm going to start by talking about some research uh, studies that have been done on pandemics in relation to like why some countries deal with them better than others. Uh, so there have actually been several of these. I'm not going to go into all of them, but there's, there's a few that have kind of cropped up. Uh, there was one called The Politics of Pandemics, Democracy, State Capacity, and Economic Inequality. This was a paper that tracked epidemic, sorry, epidemic outbreaks across, I think it was roughly two-thirds, three-quarters of the world since 1995. So it was a, a pretty long it's actually a working paper it's actually ongoing a little bit as well but it was it looked at things like 
uh, transparency, accountability of government, uh, public trust in government. And you found that these types of things, especially in democracies, can reduce the frequency and, and lethality of epidemics. It shortens response times. Uh, people are more likely to comply with any sort of public health measures that the, that the government puts down on them. But what he also found is that there were several factors that may negatively in increase epidemic problems. Things like uh, inequality, especially ec economic inequality, because it undermines a lot of the public's trust in in policies. Uh, and beyond even trust, too, people at kind of that low end of the socioeconomic scale, socioeconomic scale simply aren't able to afford to stay at home as long as some of the more wealthy. But if you have kind of a strong state, government structure can help offset some of those shortcomings. Uh, other studies that have been done too, looking into this, have kind of backed up some of these theories, looking at state strength, uh, looking at resources, looking at kind of democracy versus dictatorship, uh, population density, all, all kinds of things. And what, what he basically has found is that countries that have that state capacity, so they're strong countries, I don't mean strong in like the authoritarian sense, I mean strong in the sense that they have lots of resources. Rich countries, more so than poor countries, makes a lot of sense, but it's built in kind of to resource theory. But he also found that population density played a pretty big role as well, because as people live closer together, they're more likely to spread it to each other. Uh, and so he, he looked at a lot of these different factors, but this kind of general trust in authority is kind of an interesting perspective. Um, now, being a democracy certainly helps gen uh, engender trust in, in government authority. But what we've actually found is kind of interesting because as pandemics tend to go on, the general thought is that crisis strengthens public support for the state because they see the state as helping in intervene. But what we've actually found is that, it's, it, especially with this particular pandemic, the COVID-19, that it's kind of gone the other direction. And we found that people are trusting governments less. And this isn't just a United States thing. I, I know that seems to be a big deal now, uh, but this isn't just a United States thing. We've, we're seeing it especially across Europe as well, where there's kind of this rise in, I don't want to call it nationalism per se, because especially in Europe, it's a little bit more at the, con at the continent level. But it's this kind of inward push to trust each other. And it can actually drive um, a lot of prejudice against outsiders. And because they have seen some governments fail in a lot of ways, and here in the United States, there are several locations, like specific states that have done very poorly. And th this has led to a decrease in trust. For a lot of the world, what we're seeing is this kind of intensified break away from globalization, which is, in my opinion, a fascinating uh, move because globalization has been this huge push around the world, but you know, even here in the United States for quite a while, the world's becoming increasingly interconnected, increasingly dependent on one another, and just increasingly global in scope. But what we're seeing is that nation states are observing, I should say, some of the negative effects of that. When you have countries that are very easy to cross borders into, people coming and going very easily, a lot of people saw the pandemic spread very rapidly and are worried that their governments did not do enough to protect them in this sense. And so what we're seeing uh, is a lot of kind of nation states that are seeking identity, that are seeking protection, and we're seeing a, a backlash 
against the kind of the globalization that's been pushing the world for for a couple decades now. Uh, as they they really are looking to prefer things like controlling borders, personal state sovereignty through kind of foreign policy areas, uh, localizing production back in countries so they're less dependent on other countries uh, to bring in food. And so we're seeing this kind of swing the other direction from what a lot of people expected. Uh, I, honestly, I kind of think that's just fascinating. Um, globalization has just been such a big deal for so, for so long. And I'll be honest, I think it's probably going to continue to be that way for a while, but at least in the short term, uh, we are seeing this kind of swing back the other direction. Kind of remains to be seen how strong that is and how long it lasts. Uh, probably will end up being correlated to how long the pandemic goes on and how long that lasts, which we don't know. Um, I mean, that this COVID-19 crisis is one of the biggest kind of social experiments of our lives, if not the, the biggest. Uh, nobody alive today uh, really remembers much about the Spanish flu back in the you know, 1917, 1918. You'd have to be over 100 just to be alive during it, much less old enough to remember it. So this is, this is something that's unprecedented, and we don't really know how, how long these public perceptions are going to, to hold. Uh, but we can already see that the pandemic is transforming the way, at least that Europeans are looking at uh, their lives and, and their world, especially the world kind of beyond Europe, uh, and even to a point, the role of the European Union in their lives. And I think that's going to be a really interesting area to focus on going forward because the European Union uh, has been criticized of late. Uh, we actually had you know, Brexit. I did a whole podcast episode on Brexit a while back. Uh, so one country has actually left the European Union. And it would be interesting to see if this kind of shift in trust away from government authority actually ends up causing other countries to start to question the European Union's commitment to protecting them and to providing identity and keeping them safe and healthy. Don't really know where that's going to go, but I think it's an area to keep a, a close eye on, especially if this pandemic continues to linger and last uh, beyond what you know many health experts have, have predicted. Now, there are, there are two other areas of this I kind of want to talk about. One I mentioned briefly, and it's this idea of pandemics bringing out prejudice. Uh, this is something that's unfortunately has a long history. Politicizing disease is something that has followed plagues throughout throughout the world, really, uh, with political leaders and followers frequently pushing partisanship, ideological enemies, uh, scapegoating of of the other uh whether that's religious other ethnic others probably the most famously or i guess i should say infamously uh during the black death which i talked about back before the commercial break thousands and thousands of jews ended up getting massacred uh during this time period by non-jews because they were seen as kind of the the outsider and they were they were accused of poisoning wells they were accused of of being the ones who spread this disease and spread this illness and it resulted in like i said massacres at times because of this kind of prejudice and hatred that was brought up of us versus them which is a, a very common philosophy among people unfortunately so this is uh, one thing i think we need to be very careful about uh, it's one thing to talk about in kind of scientific terms or very factual terms, you know, where viruses come from. It's, you know, it's it's fine to talk about it as, you know, this is a, a virus that came out of Wuhan, China. That's pretty well documented that virtually everybody agrees about on that, uh, despite what 
like Xi Jinping has claimed. Actually, this is interesting. I didn't talk about this earlier, but the we, when I mentioned Napoleon using propaganda uh, during the during his plague, we see that today as well. Again, this is kind of more on the negative side of things, but Xi Jinping is is a great example of this because he has used propaganda to try to 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 swing blame away from his country, try to paint himself as this kind of brave hero, uh, despite pretty much everybody at this point agreeing the virus came out of Wuhan. Uh, there's still a lot of unknowns about exactly how. Uh, there's a lot of theories about how, but uh, pretty much everybody agrees that's where it came from. But China has been pushing this propaganda, and what we've found is there's evidence within China too that they're pushing this to their people to try to blame other outsiders, particularly Americans, but even just kind of Westerners in general. Um, but anyway, back to my point with the prejudice. It's it's one thing to to be factual about it and say this virus came out of Wuhan, China, or that's where we first saw it happening, etc. Whatever you want to do that. Uh, it's another, though, to take that and spread that to Chinese people around the world. And unfortunately, we have seen some violent attacks on Asians uh, because of this. There was... Um, you know, a guy in Texas who was stabbed because the attacker claimed he thought he was infecting people. Uh, I think he he wasn't even Chinese. I think he was um, Burmese, maybe. I don't I don't remember off the top of my head. I have to look it up again. Uh, but we've we've seen kind of these kind of racist incidents pop up since the pandemic began. Uh, so anyway, that's one thing I want to talk about. The other area I wanted to just briefly touch on uh, is actually one that I, I guess you you would say it's kind of near and dear to my heart. And that's uh, mental health concerns with this pandemic. I, I have a lot of concerns with how quickly the United States, but other countries around the world rushed into their response to the pandemic. What we saw is when these things started to come out, all of a sudden everything just shut down like that with no real plan for how to go about it. And in fact, what people were told at the time is, you know, you know, 15 day lockdown to flatten the curve or whatever. And obviously it's been well, like over a hundred days now. Uh, so that clearly went out the window, but the point is there was no real plan for how to handle this at the time. And not that I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that shutting down was the wrong decision or anything. I, I those decisions are way above my head. Uh, but what, what I observed is that people jumped to conclusions and rushed to action without really taking any sort of time to understand or even look into possible side effects of this on the pop on the population. And we're seeing these mental health concerns crop up throughout the country here in the United States. I don't know about stats around the world, although it wouldn't surprise me if they're very similar. But what we're seeing is, you know, rates of suicide jump. I know here in my city we actually saw more suicides in the first couple of months of the pandemic than we usually see in a, in a full year. Calls to suicide hotlines have spiked dramatically. Calls to domestic violence hotlines have spiked dramatically. People are now are kind of forced to be quarantined at home with often uh, abusers, which is, uh, I mean, just awful. And there's nothing that's really been put into place in a lot of, in a lot of locations anyway for how to handle situations like that. They just made everybody stay at home, not even really considering what that what that might mean for for people especially women and children but uh, you know everyone in general too uh, so we're seeing calls of domestic violence hotlines spike uh we're seeing issues with going back to school right now and this is a, a huge concern i have um not that they shouldn't go back to school but the way they're approaching it social distancing is obviously a, a very helpful tool but lack of socialization has been shown in psychological studies to be a form of dehumanization, which can have long-lasting impacts on the way people view others. 
And when you have children who are now essentially being forced to be antisocial uh, for, through a variety of ways, this can have, I, I worry anyway, some long-lasting impacts on their their developing psyche and the way that they approach and treat other people because they're not getting the socialization that is necessary uh, for early childhood development. Now, I'm not saying I have a great answer to that, uh, and I know there are some plenty of great teachers out there who will be working hard to try to make that not the case, but it is a concern that I have given that we're already seeing uh, huge spikes in mental health problems related directly to, I should say, the, the response to the pandemic. People, you know, losing their livelihoods is something that I don't really think was taken with any serious concern, at least up front. People, you know, realizing they were losing their jobs, losing the way that they could provide for their families, and honestly being shamed about it when they tried to provide for their families, tried to reopen shops and things just so they could feed their children. Uh, and others would publicly shame them on social media, sometimes try to destroy their uh, their businesses and establishments. And that got exacerbated, too, by some of the, the rioting that evolved out of protests that were going on for other reasons in this country. But that created a perfect storm of sorts for all kinds of mental health problems to emerge from from depression to anxiety to suicidal thoughts and tendencies as well. And Again, I don't have a great answer to this, but I do think it's an area that we need to be very, very careful with and very, very aware of too. Um, I know humanity is not exactly great at being, what's the word, um, thoughtful towards one another or caring towards one another at times. Uh, we're seeing this with you know social media and stuff especially, but again, rioting and violence on the, on the streets. I think we need to be especially compassionate to people because we don't really understand what they're going through. And this pandemic has been stressful on everybody. I mean, there are so many things that have gone wrong with this. People have uh, lost jobs. People have lost income. People have uh, lost the will to live. Obviously, the suicides are going up as well. This has impacts that go beyond just the disease itself. And I worry that those side effects are not being considered. Um, with that, I, I, I know that's kind of a downer note to end on, um, but I think it's it's a good sobering thought to finish out the episode with. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and close things down. Uh, please, as you go about your daily routines, whether you're going to work, whether you're working from home, whether you're out of work, uh, just be aware of other people be compassionate. Don't flip out on them because they're not handling things exactly the way that you want them to or the way that you are. Understand that this has been stressful on everybody involved. Um, with that, we're going to go ahead and close things out. Uh, I don't know exactly what this podcast is going to look like going forward. As I've uh, mentioned before, my life changes have ramped up recently. Uh, I've had some good, some not so good. But I don't really know what that is going to look like going forward with this podcast. Uh, I do have some great ideas for what I want the next couple episodes to be. So at the very least, uh, keep an eye out for those. It just may not be a, you know, every single Monday at 5 a.m. or whatever when I usually drop it. It may be a little bit more erratic, uh, maybe more frequent at times, maybe less frequent at times. But I do plan to keep doing this going forward. Honestly, I'm just kind of excited to be back uh, at the computer recording these and talking politics because I think it's really interesting. And uh, honestly, I think it's really important too. 
So if you want to get in touch with me uh, for any reason, you want to give me ideas for this podcast, you've got an idea for advertising. If you want to advertise on the podcast or support this in any way, shape, or form, just let me know. You can hit me up on social media, hit me up on Twitter. My username there is Justin R underscore Kenny. You can also find my Facebook page, which is J Robert Kenny. It's the name I write fiction novels under. Again, please go check those books out. I've actually got a third book I'm working on. I'm just about finished with the the first like full draft of it. So I'll need to go through some editing. But uh, that will be another one that will be coming out before too long. So please uh, check out the books. I'm excited about that as well. And I, honestly, I look forward to talking with you guys. So please uh, hit me up whenever you get a chance. If you're interested in uh, chatting about any of these issues further or you have ideas. Uh, or as I said, if you want to support the podcast in any way. But with no further ado, let's go ahead and end this episode the same way I always do. This is Nutshell Politics. My name is Dr. Justin Kinney, and I am out in three, two, one.